As many of you know, we are continuing our series in the Psalms. Um, And today we enter into Psalm 110. And so if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn there, use your phone, um, or if you're on Facebook, you can probably even just pull up uh, within your browser right there. But please turn to Psalm 110 as we sit there this morning. Misunderstanding can lead to devastating outcomes. And the reality is sometimes those devastating outcomes can actually be deadly. You see, the beginning of August actually marks the 75th year anniversary of the atomic bombs, little boy and fat boy being dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki by the U.S., Definitely not the finest moments in world history, let alone U.S. history. For this was the first and only time that a nuclear weapon has been used in war. And we pray to God that that's the only time. And the reality is that this probably could have been avoided altogether if not for a simple misunderstanding. See, as as the end of World War II drew near, the U.S. sensed kind of a response to Japan, calling them to surrender. And in Japan's response, they used the word moksatsu, which I could have potentially butchered that, but that's the word they used. And in in Japanese, the use of that word can mean something like, we withhold comments, pending discussion. And yet the reality is on the U.S. side, it was poorly interpreted. Is mistranslated to actually mean we are treating your message with contempt. And so media picks up on this story quickly and it kind of spreads throughout the US and the world like wildfire. And so President Truman recognizes we need to do something. We need to show the US is a force to be reckoned with, which ultimately led to the stern response of dropping these bombs on Japan. You see, this wrong understanding, this misinterpretation led to over 200,000 Japanese souls being killed, injured, or exposed to radiation. Wrong understanding can lead to devastating outcomes. And, And in Matthew 16, Jesus famously asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? To which he follows up the question, speaking specifically to his disciples, okay, but who do you say that I am? To which Peter replies, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the most high God. How do you respond to that question, who is Jesus? See, what it means that Jesus is the Christ that Jesus is the Messiah, our understanding of that is crucial for our life. It's crucial for our salvation. And Psalm 110 really hones in on that question as we look at who the Messiah is and ultimately the role that he has. Some introductory material. Psalm 110 is in the fifth book of Psalms. Again, we've talked about there's five books in the Psalms. And 110 is in the fifth book and Book five starts in 107 and kind of moves through the end. And it's really a a, a psalms of praise and adoration. And we see that Psalm 110, it says a psalm of David. 
Yet as one commentator states, it's actually better to think of this psalm as a psalm to David rather than a psalm of David. You see, the psalm is addressed to the king, not given to the king. And, and we'll see really what the significance of that is as we look at what New Testament authors have to say about this. Because the beauty is Psalm 110 is actually the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The first verse alone is quoted to or alluded to over 20 times in the New Testament. And also, this psalm is both the royal psalm, which we hopefully are familiar with, as I preached on Psalm 2 a few weeks ago. That's the introductory aspects of, of this kingly psalms. And then also, we'll see that this is a messianic psalm as it points to the Messiah. And it's really centered around two oracles, two of these statements, in a sense, David giving these prophetic words in verse 1 and verse 4. And if we can hone in on one main thing to walk away with, it's to see that Jesus the Messiah is the king, is the priest, and ultimately is the judge. And we'll see that as we walk through verses 1 through 3, looking at Jesus as this king who conquers. And verses 4, Jesus really as this eternal high priest. And then lastly, Jesus as the righteous judge. Jesus as king. We read in, in the first verse, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. Right off the bat, we're struck with a pertinent question. Okay, who are the two lords that David speaks of? Realistically, in your Bible, in your translation, you have Lord that is all capitalized and then the second Lord with a capital L. The Lord all caps is pretty easy to determine and understand. You see, because this all Lord caps carries this covenantal language, this language that brings you to recognize that this is the God of Israel. In Hebrews, it's translated Yahweh, the proper name for the God of Israel. And so we have Yahweh, the God of Israel, speaking to David's Lord. The capital L, my Lord, that David speaks of, has led to more discussion throughout the years. But we see that David as king referring to another person as Lord, that should just automatically be significant to us. Because we have the king, ultimately the highest authority in Israel, aside from God, Yahweh, Speaking of a Lord, a master that is greater than he. I see ultimately David's paying homage to this Lord, who is understood, as many commentators say, to point to the Messiah, to point to the anointed one to come, the one that Israel is longing for. And not only that, we see in each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus actually quotes this verse. He's engaging with the Pharisees about who the Christ is. And they're having questions. They're, they're arguing. And, and he quotes verse 1 as he argues that ultimately the Messiah is greater than David. This Messiah bears this lordship that exalts that of David. And, and then later we see the Apostle Peter at Pentecost 
He's, he's speaking and preaching to this crowd. And again, he quotes this verse. In chapter 2 of Acts, verse 34 through 36, he says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. As Peter clarifies, Jesus is the only one that ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. See, this Lord that David speaks of, we recognize as the Messiah. And as we follow to the New Testament, we recognize that that Messiah is Jesus the Christ. Not only that, we see in the book of Hebrews that they again quote this first verse of Psalm 110, pointing that Jesus is not only greater than David, but he's actually greater than the angels. So the Lord, this Messiah, is greater than the kings, arguably the greatest king to ever live in Israel. And he's greater than these angelic beings. This is the Lord that David speaks of. And so verse 1 really introduces us into David who's really recording a conversation between God the Father, Yahweh, and then Jesus, the Son of God, his King, whom he has anointed. He's sitting in a very beautiful position to record this conversation. And the words of God to his son is, sit at my right hand. This language denotes kind of this authority and power. It's a place of prestige and prominence. And not only that, he says, you were to sit there until I make the enemies a footstool for you. Which again, we notice in this, it is God is the one that is acting. Jesus sits there as God is the one that goes and destroys the enemies that Jesus may lay his feet upon them. The Lord is the one who will come and pass judgment. That victory is imminent. And again, this footstool language you recognize really symbolizing total defeat. Jesus completely defeats them and sits there in victory. The enemies are put as a footstool where Jesus can lounge, placing his feet up to rest. And so as we enter into verse 2, we see that really the Lord Yahweh and his king are kind of acting as one, carrying the scepter, wielding it, and then ultimately ruling over the enemies. So we actually recognize that this, this human authority of the king is actually enhanced within this partnership with God, not diminished. It's them coming together to reign and rule. And where are they coming from? They're coming from Zion, from the place where God makes his presence known. They go forth into the enemy lands to rule and to reign. It's seeing that God's kingdom is advancing. And it's always advancing. It's expanding. But we also see that, that what is a king without his army? And we're given a glimpse of this army in verse 3 where he says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. And holy garments for the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So verse 3 is rendered pretty much differently in almost every translation out there. 
Um, some people might even have a footnote that's like, this Hebrew is not understood. Uh, it's, it's a hard verse to really grasp exactly what David is saying. And yet we can get the main gist, the general picture of what is happening in verse 3. And that's we get a vision of volunteers rallying to their leader for a holy war. See, the day of power can also be on the day you will lead your forces. So he's speaking to the king and saying, on the day when you lead your forces into battle, you will have volunteers lining up to move forward with you. See, it's not this individual being coerced or forced, but it's a freely giving themselves. This kind of is a precursor to Romans 12. When Paul speaks of us being a living sacrifice, that that is, our, that is our form of spiritual worship to the Lord. See, this king, this Messiah, is so good and so worthy of praise and adoration, so worthy of honor that people freely give themselves. And we see that not only will his people be in service freely, but they're clothed in, in these holy garments, which when we think of holiness, we should actually be thinking of the temple garb that these priests would wear. In a sense, it's a kingdom of priests following their king into battle. As I began studying over the last couple weeks, um, this verse specifically, as I first read it, my mind automatically went to one of what I think is the arguably one of the best kind of war or battle scenes in cinematic history. And that's the Lord of the Rings, Two Towers at Helm's Deep. And you've got this epic battle of Saruman's thousands of troops laying siege and wondering, well, will they break through? What's going to happen to these people? It's this gruesome battle, yet as, as the battle climaxes, if you've seen the, if you've seen the movie, you, your mind automatically goes there, that you see Gandalf emerge in the east, as the sun is rising, you see him emerge over the hill. White light shining behind him as he peers down on the thousands of Saruman's forces. And the camera pans down to the battle and then slowly pans back up. And you have Gandalf. And as that, they're there, you have all the riders of Rohan just making their crest over the edge, lining with just this shining bright light. And in the movie, you have Aomer shout, to the king! And as one, they stride into battle. That's my, imper that's my imperfect visualization of, of this imagery that, that David is pulling on. This willing, voluntary, glorious, holy triumph into the enemy territory. Another commentator, he sums up this passage by saying, this verse, as I see it, pictures the Messiah going forth in primal vigor, holiness and glory, at the head of a host which is as dedicated as those early Israelites who jeopardized their lives to the death. You see, this king will boldly and confidently lead his people into battle. 
He seeks to rule and expand the boundaries of his kingdom and those that follow him follow freely. And and in verse 4, we see that the Lord, Yahweh, continues his revelation of who this Messiah is, who this king is, in the second oracle. That ultimately proclaims not only will this Messiah be king, but this Messiah will also be the high priest. Verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, this statement should be extremely profound. For never in the history of Israel do you have a king who serves both the role as king and as high priest. You see, as Israel's history progresses and the kingdom is established, the likelihood of a kingly priest or a priestly king is just very unlikely. And many actually argue it's even impossible. Because you see, at the end of Genesis, as Jacob blesses his sons, we're told that Judah and his line will always carry the scepter will always be the ruling party. In 49, it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the staff from his feet. So even prior to this, kings, kings being established in Israel are already given that from the line of Judah, these kings will come. And not only is he to be from the line of Judah, but we actually see in 2 Samuel 7 that it's to be from the line of David. We see Yahweh establish a covenant with King David, where he says, from your family, from your line, it will be an eternal kingdom. Chapter 7, verse 16 of 2 Samuel, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So to be king, the true king of Israel, means you come from the line of David. Yet the priesthood was established at Mount Sinai when God made his covenant with Israel through his interactions with Moses on the mountain. And God clearly sets apart the tribe of Levi to be those that serve in a priestly capacity. And not only that, within the tribe of Levi, we have the family of Aaron, the brother of Moses. In Exodus 28, 1, it says, bring near to you Aaron, your brother. He's speaking to Moses and his sons with him for among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Numbers 3.10, you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. So priests, line of Aaron. You're automatically seeing those, those don't really coexist. King, David. Priests, Aaron. And yet here, we have God proclaiming that this Messiah will come as both king and priest. But we recognize that this priesthood is not according to the order of Aaron. It's rather according to the order of Melchizedek. According to an order that came before the law was established, before Israel was even a nation. This Messiah will be a priest according to Melchizedek and his priestly role will be forever. Again, without end, eternal, everlasting. And this reality is sworn by the God who says, does not lie, does not change his mind. As God states it, it'll come to pass. So the question is, who is Melchizedek? 
Melchizedek ultimately has a rather short scene in the story and meta-narrative of Scripture. He seems to show up out of nowhere and then kind of disappear again into nothing. Melchizedek shows up on the scene in, in Genesis 14. See, Abraham and, and his nephew Lot, they've accumulated so much wealth and so much property and animals that they actually needed to divide. And so Abraham takes one area and Lot takes the other. And in a short amount of time, we have all these kings that are battling against one another. And in the mess of this, Lot gets kidnapped. And so Abraham, with his men, goes and pursues to get Lot back, which he, he does. He receives Lot back into his care. And it's in the aftermath of the battle that Abraham interacts with Melchizedek. In Genesis 14, 18 through 20, he says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of most high God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek's name actually means king of righteousness. And he serves as both king and priest of the most high God simultaneously in Salem, which Salem means peace. And many believe that Salem is the precursor for Jerusalem, which throughout this week I had that aha moment of Jerusalem. Oh, it's right there in the word. So we see Melchizedek and not Aaron actually being the one that offers a combination of being both priest and king coexisting. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, I have this quote on the screen, powerfully speaks of this reality. He says, Melchizedek's office was exceptional. None preceded or succeeded him. He comes upon the page of history mysteriously. No pedigree is given no date of birth or mention of death. He blesses Abraham, receives tithe, and vanishes from the scene amidst honors which show that he was greater than the founder of the chosen nation. How significant. He was greater than the founder of the chosen nation. He is seen but once, and that once suffices. Aaron and his seed came and went. Their imperfect sacrifice continued through many generations because it had no finality in it and could never make the comers thereunto perfect. So he's ultimately saying that the line of, line of Aaron and the, the sacrificial system is leaving us wanting. Yet there is a future to come, one that will take up the office of Melchizedek, will take up the role of a priestly king, we recognize that that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Like Melchizedek, Jesus does not mention his familial descent as his right to this sacred office. He doesn't, no, he just stands upon his own personal merit. He stands alone. No man can come before him or no man can come after him. They can do what he did. And Jesus, like Melchizedek, is the king of righteousness and the king of of peace. You see, the author of Hebrews actually powerfully emphasizes these truths as the author reveals that Christ as priest 
after the order of Melchizedek is actually greater than the Levitical priesthood. We should kind of take a side note tangent here. The beauty of a passage like Psalm 110 is it actually shows us that first and foremost, as we read scripture, as we look to interpret what the Bible has to say, before we go to commentators, we should just go to the word of God and to see, does this show up anywhere else in God's word? Because again, the scriptures are the only thing that is truly inspired by God. And so when we go to Psalm 110, it automatically brings us to Hebrews. And Hebrews is richly saturated with the language of Jesus as the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So I really urge you, as we read our Bibles, I love commentaries. I spend hours in commentaries as I prep to preach. But first and foremost, we as the people of God should spend time in God's word. We have either footnotes or we have cross-references that point us to scripture. And we can use scripture to interpret scripture, which is a powerful blessing and tool that God has given us. And we see in Hebrews 7 that the author ultimately proclaims that Christ became priest. Again, not on the basis of legal requirements, but on the power of his indestructible life. You see, he is the priest that gives us hope because he is the priest that draws us near to God through the new covenant. He is the eternal intercessor. We're told that he is the only priest who is holy innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. I know not only that, he is the only priest whose sacrifice was truly atoning once and for all of our sins and blemishes. On the screen we have chapter 7, verse 27 through 28 that reads, He has no need like those high priests, the priests of Israel in the order of Aaron, to offer daily sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses, and their weaknesses, high priest, but the word of the oath, again, this is speaking of Psalm 110, verse four, the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And again in Hebrews 10, every priest shall stand daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, how amazing, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins. Powerful language points to this psalm. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected all time those who are being sanctified. You see, Christ is the great eternal high priest. He intercedes for his people. He is the one that draws us near to God, and so praise be to Christ. See, these last verses in Psalm 110, it points to the future victories of this priestly king. The reality is he will not sit in this waiting posture forever, but he shall rise and enter into the fight. The end of the weary war will experience his victorious presence. He will lead the final charge in person as the priestly king who alone 
is worthy to be the righteous judge. Verses five through seven say, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The psalm ends with images of a rather fierce and gruesome battle, or arguably battles, of this strenuous pursuit as this priestly king pursues world conquest. It's important to recognize that this world conquest is not of this imperial pursuit of just look at the land that I have. Rather, it's a conquest to bring people to himself, to righteously and rightly judge the earth. He comes as a warrior to confront sin and to bring people to the foot of his kingdom, the foot ultimately of the cross. You see, in this day of judgment, we see the supremacy of, of his authority. For on the day of his wrath, commonly known as the day of the Lord, on this day of judgment, who can stand? You see, the kings have no power over him. They will fall. The nations have no power over him. They will fall. All who oppose him will fall. And again, we recognize this authority, this power, not as a hungry warmonger, no, he's, he's the righteous king. He's the holy, eternal priest. As king, he represents God to humanity, and as priest, he represents humanity to God. And he's bringing these things into unity. He stands in between as the only righteous judge of the earth. Is he to stand in opposition to Christ? Is to stand in opposition to God? And one cannot stand in opposition to the God of the universe without experiencing judgment. See, the psalm ends with the Messiah, the priestly king, being refreshed by the brook. As he continually judges, it says that in victory he will lift his head. And again, we recognize it's in defeat. After you get destroyed, that you hang your head in agony and really embarrassment. And yet it's, you raise your head high in pride and joy as you become victorious. In the end, Christ is victorious and nothing can prevail against him. The great revivalist preacher and theologian, Jonathan Edwards, once said, the ideas and images in men's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. Again, the ideas and images in men's minds, are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. And how right he is. What we think governs how we live. I mean, if we just look at this cultural moment, how many of our thoughts and actions are ultimately governed by whether we ascribe to Fox News or CNN? whether we delight or disdain in our president, whether we think coronavirus is legitimate threat or is a hoax, or the countless hours we spend on Facebook looking at memes or fuming at various comment threads. It doesn't take long to realize that these ideas, these images actually govern us. They control our thoughts, our actions, our desires. 
They dictate what we do. And yet we recognize that this is not just evident in our civic life, but rather this is evident in our spiritual life. And I'd argue that really what we believe and hold to in our spiritual life is going to be overflowing into our civic life. Again, the ideas and images we have for Christ matter greatly. For how we view Christ will ultimately dictate how we live our life. A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You see, it is of greatest importance to not misunderstand the person and role of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Because if we misunderstand who Christ is, it has devastating consequences. And so we conclude our time this morning thinking through what it tangibly means that Jesus the Messiah is king, is priest, is judge. This is the, this, what, what, is, what does this psalm mean for us today? Jesus is king means that he came to establish the reign of God. I mean, we remember we're going through Mark throughout the year. The beginning of Mark, as Jesus comes onto the scene, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. He's calling us into his kingdom. Jesus' king means that he has the authority, the utmost authority and power. See, there's no one higher than the king of the world. The reality is what he decides is the law of the land, is the law of the land. Which leads us to ask, do we know his law? I mean, David calls us to meditate on it day and night. Do we do that or do you just set it by the wayside? We as his subjects, we are to know his commands and to obey his commands. And again, this is not because he's some power-hungry king who wants to enslave us and just slap us with submission. No, the reality is we've seen he is the righteous, pure, peaceful king and priest. He actually cares about the well-being of those who are under his sovereign care. See, he loves and adores his subjects. And we know that because we know the story of the cross. That Jesus, the king, was willing to die on behalf of his people. That we could be made right with God. He is worthy to be followed. Jesus king obviously means that we are not king or we are not queen of our lives. We're not king of our work. We're not king of our house. We're not king of our life. You see, the way of Davy opposed to the way of God will always lead to destruction. Jesus proclaims the divided kingdom cannot stand. Or again, we think of the parable of the house built on sand or the house built on rock. Are we building our lives on the foundation and the kingship of Christ or the sandy foundation and kingship of my own life? You see, recognizing Christ as king means we are to investigate our own lives and see, where have I built or where am I building my little kingdoms. 
Are there areas of my life that stands in opposition to God? Or are we saying, well, God, yeah, you have your big kingdom, but I just am going to build my little castle in the midst of your grand kingdom. He doesn't want those walls up. Him as king is to break those down. My friends, being united to the kingdom of God should ultimately be a freeing experience. For we don't have to constantly try and build our own kingdoms. Always striving to improve and make it bigger, to recognize that somebody's kingdom is bigger and better always and forever. Or someone ridicules us for the meagerness of of this kingdom that we built. You see, in our pursuit for what we think is freeing as we have our own little confine that we can feel safe in is actually the very thing that cripples us. It's the very thing that pulls us away from the kingdom of God and his presence. See, Jesus' king invites us into a mission and a way forward. He invites us into an army that will be victorious. There's no doubt about it. You see, we figuratively take up arms for the king. His mission becomes our mission. When we recognize the language used, it's a free response that we have to the gift of salvation. And we recognize that in battle, casualties will happen. But we also recognize that in the end, our king is victorious. And if our king is victorious, his people are victorious. And we can rejoice that even in the midst of sorrow and heartache and pain and potential loss, he's worthy of following. Jesus as king means that we are the king's men and the king's women, always doing the business of the king. So does your life reflect that of a living sacrifice as Paul speaks of? In Romans 12. And Jesus' priest means that Jesus came as the priest who opened the way to God. You see, prior to Jesus' high priest, if you were not of the tribe of Levi, and if you were not, and you had to be an Israelite, the closest you could ever get to the Holy of Holies in the temple, where God resided, was 90 feet. Yet if you were uh, Gentile, which I'm assuming the overwhelming majority of in this room are, that distance was even farther. There was always some aspect of separation between you and God. I mean, just think 90 feet is the space of a, the length of an NBA basketball court. Yet through Jesus, the Lamb of God, his sacrifice on the cross, abolished that 90 feet, tore the robe or tore the curtain in two, See, a sin offering is the finished work that never need be repeated. Jesus' priest means we have access to the living God. And we will never not have access to God through Jesus, for he is the priest forever, for eternity. See, friends, we are welcome before God, and as our priest, it means that Christ is our intercessor. You see, we are mortals and God is divine. And through the divine man, Jesus Christ, he really is our go-between. He intercedes on our behalf so that we can be brought near to God. And not only is he our intercessor, but he's also our mediator. Again, he's the mediator of this new covenant. He gave himself as a ransom to take us before God the Father. 
we need to recognize what an immense blessing this is. Because of Christ's sacrifice, we don't need the role of a priest as our go-between to God. We have Christ. And Christ is enough. So go to him. I mean, as Victoria read, and as we responded in thanksgiving, we serve a high priest who, who knows our struggles, our pain, our heartache, and yet he rose victorious through all of that. He is the one that we can go to in prayer and seek comfort. So do, do we reflect that in our prayer lives? Do we even pray? Jesus is the high priest who actually brings us to the throne of God, where we can speak freely and openly to our creator. What a beautiful, beautiful reality. And lastly, we see that Jesus is his judge. You see, we ultimately, this psalm ends with a somber picture of what it means to oppose God. The king of righteousness and peace. The great high priest who unites us with God. You see, he brings peace through the cosmos, through his perfect judgment. He will rightly judge those who stand in opposition. And we see that those who oppose his kingdom, oppose his priestly role, will experience his wrath. So that makes us ask the question, where is our allegiance? You're either for or against. There's no in-between. It's not half in the kingdom, half out. It's all for or all against. And if you stand in opposition, I urge you, friend, to reconsider. See, there's still time. The day of the wrath of the Lord has not yet come in its totality. The day of the Lord has not come, and so you have time to turn and repent. Will you pledge your fealty to the king? The cost will be high. The cost will be dying to yourself and carrying a cross on your back every single day. The cost will realistically be being misunderstood in this world, being a sojourner and a stranger in a foreign land. Whereas our culture continues, it looks like it's going to be harder and harder to be a follower of Christ and fit into this realm. Yet the reality is the cost you endure will be but a drop in the bucket to what we receive in return. Just fellowship with our creator and father, the God of Israel who is our God, Yahweh. And ultimately the cost will end with the words that I believe as Christians we so long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. See, Psalm 110 powerfully and beautifully shows us who the Messiah is. Written years before Christ comes, and yet we see how Christ fulfills all of it. We see that Christ Jesus is the Messiah 
who assumes the role of the righteous conquering king, who assumes the role as the holy, pure, and eternal high priest, and lastly pursues the role and and has the role of the righteous judge. It's essential to grasp and rightly understand who Christ is. For rightly understanding who Jesus is leads to life while wrongly understanding who he is will lead to wrath. So may we find comfort and satisfaction in our priestly King Jesus. To him be our glory, honor, and praise. Let's pray.